This is episode 19 of Cinescope, and he who can destroy a thing, controls a thing. Welcome to Cinescope, where our goal is not to criticize or to assign ratings, but rather to celebrate the movies we love, exploring story, characters, music, and relevance to the world around us. I'm your host, Chad Hopkins, and joining me today is Patrick Casey to talk about one of his favorite films, Dune. Patrick, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on here. I'm very excited to have you on the show. Um, You know, you're a podcaster as well, and I've listened to going on a hundred episodes of you talking about a certain video game. So how about you tell us about that? Yeah, uh, I, I'm i not actually known for movie reviews at all, in fact. Uh, I, I do content for the video game Destiny. I work on YouTube, Twitch, streaming, and I just I cover the video game. I'm also a fairly prolific podcaster when it comes to uh, the subject of that game as well. Yeah, you did the Planet Destiny podcast for mm-hmm. 90-something episodes, right? And uh, now yep. you've branched off and you've got the Destiny Community podcast. Yep. And they're both excellent shows. So uh, well, thank you. I've been listening for a while. Excited to have you on and to talk to you about now a film. And that film is one that you mentioned, you brought up, and I had never really even heard of it before. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I'm excited to talk with you about that in just a moment. But uh, first, just a reminder to the listeners, please go to iTunes consider rating, reviewing, and subscribing to help out the show. It's a big boost to us. It's going to help us to branch out and find new listeners. And anything you can do in that regard is a big help to us. So thank you in advance. And now we are ready to move on. You ready, Patrick? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. (laughs) Okay, so this movie is Dune. It was released on December 14th of 1984. So we are about one week out from its 32nd anniversary. Yeah, it's it's Something I, sh- I should note is this movie came out after Star Wars. Yes. Because that, that came out in 1977, I believe. Yes. It was directed by David Lynch, who also directed Eraserhead, The Elephant Man, Blue Velvet, Wild at Heart, Mulholland Drive, and he is the creator of the Twin Peaks TV series, which is actually currently working on getting a revival by mm-hmm. David Lynch. I've stayed at the hotel in that opening. Oh, in the wow. Opening that's of that very series. Cool. Yeah. You know, Twin Peaks is a series that is on my list of things to watch. So I've, I've never watched it as well. It's been one of those things that's always, oh, I'll get to it eventually. Right. And now that a revival's around the corner, better now than ever. Seems like a good time. Yeah. It was also rave, written by David Lynch, and it's based on the novel Dune by Frank Herbert. Mm-hmm. The music is by Toto, <laughs> and uh, the prophecy theme is composed by Brian Eno. It stars Kyle MacLachlan, Brad Dourif, Linda Hunt, Patrick Stewart, Max von Sydow, Sting, Francesca Annis, Jose Ferrer, Freddie Jones, Kenneth McMillan, Dean Stockwell, Jurgen Prochno. So there's a lot of people in this movie. There's just a lot of characters and a lot of names to know. Mm-hmm. There, are, there are a ton of names to know in this particular film. I think this was like Kyle MacLachlan's, I think, was it his first film? It's definitely very early in yeah. his film career. Yeah, the only reason I even knew who Kyle MacLachlan was was watching like a uh, a nostalgia critic review of the Flintstones movie, and Kyle MacLachlan plays the the boss of the quarry in that, and then it cut oh, to wow. a scene of him uh, much younger riding on the, riding on the sandworms in Dune. And I was like, oh, I recognize <laughs> him. <laughs> I, I don't know if I'd ever made that connection before, but that's absolutely yeah. right. Yeah. 
that's uh, quite the connection. I, I had recently seen him in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. He was in the first couple seasons of that on ABC. I've not watched that show. I, I guess I will have to now. Yeah, he is excellent in that show. And, uh, I mean, he's definitely the star of the show here. So, mm-hmm. How about you start us off, Patrick? What was your first experience with this movie? Okay. It's, it's kind of a long story, actually. Um, <laughs> when growing up, we only had, for, for about five years, we only had three videotapes in our house. Uh, Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Ghostbusters, the first one, and Dune. All three of these were recorded over like a weekend off the sci-fi channel onto a onto a tape. And I, I don't know why, but I always rewatched Dune. I would watch it about once per week uh, from the ages of five, five until about ten. So I, I watched this movie quite a bit growing up, and it's, it's obviously a ve- it's a very mature film. You, you you when you first watch it, you're like, what is going on? There are some huge themes going on here in the background, a lot of really subtle stuff. And my dad like walk up walked up to me and it's like, do do you actually understand what's going on in this film? <laughs> and me, I think I was like seven at the time, so I've been watching it for about two years at that point, <laughs> and I'm like. Yeah, yeah, Dad, I understand. Uh, the worms are the spice, and he was, and he was like, "Oh, right," and just, just walked away from me. Um, I, I watched the film a lot, and it—I I can't really explain why I liked it so much. I, I really can't, but it, I was always drawn back to it every single uh, week, I guess. So, are you a fan of the book series as well? Yes, uh, the this is the film that got me into the book series. I didn't even bother reading the book series until uh, high school, I think it was. And uh, once I read the first one, quickly went out, bought every single other uh, book in the original series, and then the two that his son uh, helped finish after his death. Okay. So like I said earlier, I was not at all familiar with this film. (laughs) I have not read the books, but I was familiar with the name David Lynch, mostly because of Twin Peaks. Mm-hmm. And I was familiar with several members of the cast. This was actually one of Patrick Stewart's early film roles, too. Yep. And then Brad Dourif was in One Floor of the Cuckoo's Nest, and he was in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Linda Hunt is in like TV nowadays, and she was the voice of Grandmother Willow and Pocahontas. And so I, I know all these characters from their, their sort of bit parts over the years. And so, Sting, too. The police. Oh, yeah. Uh, Sting, too. Of course. <laughs> I, I had that written down. Oh, and Max von Sydow, who is mm-hmm. ancient now and... uh He's probably most famously known for the seventh seal where he plays chess with death. And Mm -hmm. um, recently he was actually in Star Wars, the force awakens at the very beginning of the film. So big cast of characters here, lots of eventual big names. And so I, I knew those names and I liked them, but I didn't really know any of their work from this time period. So it was new seeing them in sort of a new light because they were a lot younger. They were a lot more inexperienced. They weren't the big names then that they Mm -hmm. are now, obviously. The, the casting of this film is, uh, after having read the books, is perfect, too. Kyle MacLachlan is, you know, even though he's much older than Paul is in the books, he's still, whenever I'm reading the books and I'm thinking of Paul, I see him. A slightly younger version of him, at least. Uh, I can't, I'm horrible at connecting names uh, with <laughs> with uh, faces, but uh-huh. Lady Lady Jessica Baron, uh, Vladimir Harkonnen, Duke Leto, almost every single character is perfectly casted to fit just the the theme of each character as well. 
that's always nice to see in a book to film adaptation. Mm-hmm. And then lastly, I mean, my familiarity with the the names attached, at least, I, I know a few Toto songs. So I was interested <laughs> to see uh, Toto's involvement in this film because just a few years previous to this, there was Flash Gordon, which was mm-hmm. also a sci-fi epic, the music composed by Queen, which is one of my favorite bands. Now, I think that comparison is really interesting because whereas Flash Gordon is very B-movie on purpose, yeah. very tongue-in-cheek a lot of the time and this is very opposite to that it's sort of in the same vein as far as sci-fi adventure epic space film goes but this one definitely takes itself a lot more serious it's extremely faithful to the original source and i say that with a big hairy butt to that statement it's very faithful in terms of theme and tone tone most importantly there's two versions of this movie that have been made there was this one and then the the one that was on the sci-fi channel in early 2000s and the sci-fi channel version is the epitome of when you try and take a book and perfectly adapt it to the, a visual media while yes it does look as i would expect it to and all the lines are correct something gets lost in in that transition from you know the physical thing that you have to read into the thing that you have to watch at the same time. And while uh, this version of Dune, the the 1984 one, it, it gets the story very wrong in many places, leaves huge things out, very important pillars of the story out, but the overall theme and tone of it perfectly captures Dune so much so that when I, when you watch this, it's not a, I, I personally feel like you're kind of enthralled into the story or entranced by it and i want to go read the books i want to go further delve into this world in the sci-fi channel version it felt like it was you know a very very thin puddle that you could see through and not really have much interest in that's that's just my personal opinion at the same time (laughs) right i definitely know what you mean um I don't think that film adaptations should necessarily follow the book beat for beat. I think mm-hmm. that the tone and the sort of the themes of the book are what a film should capture. And then other than that, let them be their own. Mm-hmm. And so hearing that comparison, the way you describe it, I'm really, that was, that was my biggest takeaway to sort of wrap away my first or wrap up my first experience is that I'll be just honest. I didn't love this movie, but mm-hmm. I didn't dislike it at all. I thought it was fascinating and I'm definitely eager to dive into the books and to sort of hear your opinion here so I can see the appeal a little bit more beyond the appeal that I already have. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So uh, what what about the story brings you in here? It becomes more apparent if you read the books, which I guess is why I like it so much. Um, they very briefly gloss over it on in, in the film when they talk about the jihad that Paul will eventually go on. And in the book, it's this huge crisis of identity for paul he he eventually gains uh prescient uh, prescience and is able to see into the future he knows the path that he will eventually go on and he's so terrified of it but because he can see the future and know what's going to come he's scared of not knowing as well at the same time and uh, eventually goes on to, to commit atrocities across the entire galaxy basically a murdering mur- mass genocide, I believe is the, the term that they use. And the reason the story kind of stands out to me is this main character, Paul, very young is this perfect anti-hero. Like we're, we're rooting for him. He's obviously the character, you know, that 
he has his father was killed. You know, his family, his entire um, house was decimated by the emperor and the Harkonnens. And you want to see him get revenge for it. But at the same time, that path of revenge leads to so much, you know, greater atrocities that were even committed against his own family. So it's this, this wonderful kind of crisis that leads you further into the world of, of Dune. Right. Things that I like, I like the I already mentioned this a little bit. I do like how seriously it takes itself. It it feels mm-hmm. in the same vein as Star Wars. You know, Star Wars, I mean, maybe say for the prequel trilogy, the original trilogy is never a joke. You know, Correct. It, 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 it takes itself seriously. It lets you explore the universe because it feels real. It feels like a properly built universe. And that, that was one of the things I really liked about this. I liked the, the, the idea of the sonic weapons and the idea of the spice <laughs> and the melange and, it's just a fascinating world to sort of step into and see these characters living in this situation. And the uh, the sonic weapons that you spoke of, that's one of the brilliant adaptations that I actually like about this. In the book, they uh, or in, in the movie, they called it the weirding modules, which uh-huh. is a reference to the book where the Bene Gesserit and multiple other people learn a fighting, not really a fighting, but a kind of a way of controlling your bodies every everything in your body down to the molecular structure of your cells to help you regenerate or help you heal faster and everything. And it's called the weirding way. And in a way it's basically space Kung Fu, (laughs) which would not translate well to film at all, at least with the technology that they had at the time. So I think that's a wonderful choice that they did. They had sonic, you know, sonic weapons that used voice still in the kind of the same vein of their, their amplifying portions of their body to fight. And that's basically what they were doing with the original weirding way with, uh, you know, enhancing their body through just learning about their body at the same time. Right. I think the settings here are also just really beautifully done. I mean, there are some fantastic shots in this film and there were Mm -hmm. moments where I thought it, it almost seemed like sort of Blade Runner meets Star Wars Mm -hmm. or it's, you've got the urbanization brought to the desert setting and we start the film with this brilliant opening uh, scenery and the music playing. And I I mean, films just don't do that often enough. I I think I've said that exact phrase on here on the show before because we we get to these older films and they start and it's just you get to see the scenery you get to see the setting you get to hear the music and nothing else is distracting you at the start of the film while you're Mm -hmm. sort of settling into the world it it paints a very vivid uh landscape of what you're about to entail that opening scene with the uh with the prophecy thing by brian Eno at the start is it's it's powerful it's it's it sets you up into the world of arrakis very very quickly Mm-hmm. And I liked that opening monologue that directly preceded the opening credits as well. I, th- I thought it was a pretty good introduction to um, what the central conflict is. It tells us about the spice, what the spice is, who the bad guy is, essentially, who the good mm-hmm. guy is, essentially. And then here we are. We're off into Dune. And I, I thought that was a great way to sort of set up the film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a fairly, I, th- I believe that opening monologue is in the book. There are passages above the start of each chapter and the opening monologue is kind of taken from a couple different portions of those in the book that's pretty cool last thing i really have to say about the story section is i think the use of internal monologue and sort of voiceover Mm -hmm. is really it's fascinating in this movie because a character will give a look 
And where, as in other films, you might, okay, what, what did that look mean? What did that, mm -hmm. huh? What, what, what is he trying to communicate? And instead of leaving us guessing as a film goer, film watcher, they give us the character's internal monologue. And so we'll, we'll hear a character's thoughts directly in the moment. And that, that's like a big no-no in films. Right. That is a big no-no. But I, I don't think it's like, it doesn't cheapen anything here. No, it, it doesn't. It, I think it's it's one of the testaments to every rule is meant to be broken. It's there for a reason because, you know, you don't want to treat the audience like they're idiots. But at the same time, it, it allows you to get into the world just a little bit more in this particular instance. And I think it was done very well for this uh, for this story. Right. It gives us a little bit of the future story. It gives us a little prophecy. Mm -hmm. And then the the like I said, the character thoughts give us meaning to glances that otherwise we wouldn't have no meaning for. And mm -hmm. so I, I think that was a, a great subtle way of storytelling that didn't feel like they were beating us over the head trying to communicate something to us. Indeed. Do you have anything else to say about the story? There's a, one thing I do want to say that there is a there's a lot of different versions of the film. And I asked you which version you were watching, which is, I believe, just the standard uh, the standard edit that goes out to a lot of different places. Um, there's one particular scene that's in one of the extended cuts. I can't remember. There's so many at this at this point, but it's. It's the uh, one of the bigger parts of the story that shows Paul's transition from kind of a boy into knowing what he has to become. And there's a it's the only like f fight scene aside from the very, very end against Sting that's in the it's in the movie as well. And it's when when Paul basically kills for the first time. OK. And it's a it's wonderfully beautiful scene uh, in the book. It's wonderfully beautiful in, in the in the movie. It. it further introduces us to the fact of how how precious water is to the Fremen and those of uh, those that are on Arrakis because after Paul kills he uh he cries he cries and they're the Fremen are con not confused but they have this reverence for the act of crying because he you're giving moisture to the dead someone who is unable to use that moisture and then after that they take the person who he killed they take his body and reclaim all the water from it. And Paul carries that with him for a very long time. Wow, that is really interesting. Yeah, it, it, it's a wonderful book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm looking forward to reading it now. <laughs> well, let's talk about Paul just a little bit more. Talk about some mm -hmm. characters. Um, he's interesting as this sort of savior type of character. I mean, he's obviously he's being prepared for and is preparing for this sort of greater purpose mm -hmm. uh, to save the Fremen. And there's this sense of heroism where he he goes on this sort of hero's journey over the course of the film. But at the same time, there's this darkness. And you were talking about that a little bit earlier, where eventually maybe in the future he he is not the benevolent presence that the Fremen maybe hoped he would be. Mm -hmm. um, and so that that definitely shows itself a little bit here. And I, I wrote down just absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Somebody given that amount of power, just all of a sudden, maybe he didn't have that power all of his life. It does something to you. And we, mm -hmm. we sort of saw the beginnings of that here towards the end, especially in the violent way he killed uh, Sting's character. Yes. Um, I can't remember how violent it, in, in the, uh, in the book, it, it, it was, it definitely wasn't as violent, but I feel that, for the for the purpose of the film, it was kind of needed to fully show the amount of rage that Paul was subduing. Uh -huh. uh, at the same time, you know, it's, this is a man who belongs to the family that essentially killed y your family. So 
yeah, the, the, the rage that he shouts, I can't even, I can't remember what Paul even shouts at him. Uh, but I do remember, uh, uh, Sting's character, uh, Fade always prancing around and going, I will kill him. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think it's like, uh, Chaksa or something like that or Chaska. I don't remember. That. Yeah. They, they, they all, they all have, uh, kind of guttural guttural uh-huh. noises uh that they would say that's supposed to emphasize a feeling i believe that's the lore of the movie at least uh-huh and i mean aside from watching him sort of be slowly consumed by this power the powers themselves are really cool mm-hmm. <laughs> because he he's psychic to a point he can control these giant sandworm creatures which are terrifying and <laughs> ginormous and he has this ability to sort of look ahead into the space and the future. And he's got the sonic powers and we come to learn he's able to use these sonic powers without the aid of the, without the, without the aid of the device. Right. Mm -hmm. And um, then at the very end of the film, he makes it rain Mm -hmm. in a place that it doesn't rain. So we really sort of get a glimpse of the, the power that this guy is amassing. A God. Uh, I don't know how well it was translated in the, in the movie, because in the book it's, it's very obvious that, the Bene Gesserit, uh, and you know the very opening scene where Paul has to basically stick his hand into the box and the woman that he's speaking with, they are they are recognizing that he actually might be the Kwisatz Haderach, the you know the super being, right? Uh, and that's what the Bene Gesserit's sole purpose is. They've been trying to breed a super being, and then so they will have control of that super being at the same time. Wow. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I think I had read a little bit about that while researching, but I don't know if I exactly picked up on it while watching. So it, it it's it's very it's only mentioned like once or twice in the very it's it's kind of glossed over a little bit. Uh huh. What characters do you have to talk about? Uh, Paul himself is just, is done very well. Uh, Kyle MacLachlan really just absolutely knocked it out of the park for that role. Uh, the there's a lot of subtleties to Paul's character that he emphasizes very very well the did did you get a sense that he paul is almost carrying a burden i do um kyle mclaughlin is one of those actors who's capable of communicating a great level of intensity Mm -hmm. without having to say a whole lot you see it in his eyes and the way he sort of grits his teeth and the the smirk of his mouth i mean he's able to show the amount of stress that he's going through in just a look and you definitely see a lot of that in this movie yeah the his performance and the intensity that he's able to carry that burden without without the story really even touching on it because it all the the burden actually isn't in the film it, it's what happens much later in the, in the story right i i wrote down the baron harkonnen just because mm-hmm. he's sort of this He's disgusting as a character. I mean, he's grotesque. He's despicable. And he's set apart as so different than any other character we see in the film because, one, he floats around because he's so overweight. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, I mean, he's got these disgusting, like, pustules all over his face. And he basically drinks a guy's blood at one scene. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, he's just this repulsive character. And that makes his demise towards the end of the film uh, so much more satisfying. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Uh, and basically all of that is true from the books as well. Uh, he, he is equally as disgusting and vile, and he does float around uh, using special suspenders, as they're called. And, <laughs> you know, he has he has pustules and stuff all over his face because at one point in time, uh, the Bene Gesserit were trying to keep his bloodline alive just in case of anything. So they would send an agent over there to, you know, quote unquote, 
extract his bloodline, which basically meant sleep with him. But the Bene Gesserit that had slept with him was just so repulsed by him that she basically cursed him with some horrible disease, which she's able to control in her body and release whenever she feels like it. Because that's the power of the weirding way. You can uh-huh. take all take all your weird STDs and just set them off to the side, and then use whenever you feel like. <laughs> right. Any other characters you want to talk about? Gurney Halleck, Patrick Stewart, is the perfect epitome of Gurney Halleck in this movie. Fiercely, fiercely loyal to the Atreides, and he would absolutely do anything for them. Uh, and I like his his performance as uh, Gurney Halleck is one of the other ones that just truly stands out to me. Uh-huh. The the scene towards the end of the film where he Paul reveals to Gurney that he is alive and wasn't mm-hmm. killed those years ago. Shows him the ring. Right, he shows him the ring and there's that that pause before they reunite and embrace and it, it really is sort of a touching moment because mm-hmm. you do see his loyalty and you do see the instant turn where he's like, "Okay, I'm I'm with you." And later he tries to sort of sacrifice himself when Sting's character wants to kill Paul, but Paul says, no, 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 this is my battle to fight. And so, yeah, he is a really interesting character. And I mean, Patrick Stewart's always good in everything. So mm-hmm. uh, I liked his character as well. Definitely. Any others? Like, like I said, almost every, the casting of this movie was perfect to a point where every, almost every single person, oh, uh, Piper, uh, I can't remember the actor's name, but the- uh, Brad Dourif. Brad Dourif, yes, was- uh, I, I absolutely love just the scheming that th- this guy is able to convey, which that he, he does a ton of scheming in the books and you, you still get a sense for like he has all these other sinister plans behind what he's actually doing in the movie. Uh huh. And I mean, Brad Dourif, I, I guess he just plays that kind of character really well because of he, course he in Lord of the Rings, well. he does mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> run the worm tongue and he's, that's mm-hmm. basically the same sort of character. But this character definitely does feel very distinct from his Lord of the Rings character. And um, at the same time, you, you feel the same sort of disgust for him just because mm-hmm. of how, how sleazy he is and how willing to do whatever he's been told, no matter how terrible it is. He's you know? Basically, he's, he's, he wants Lady Jessica for himself. And there, there's one scene where I believe he says, and, and remember, Baron, I do get Lady Jessica once we're all done with this, correct? And it's like, yes, 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 you will. So he, he just wants Lady Jessica all for himself. That's, that, that's his main goal that he was trying to work towards in the film. Yeah. Well, cool. I, I, I don't really have any other characters that specifically stand out but like you said everybody does a great performance here i, I mm-hmm. feel like i believe all the characters and um i i really just enjoy this world that they're placed in and watching them react to it mm-hmm. uh, do you have anything to say about the music specifically not really i i feel like the music in films is one of the best things when you almost don't notice it uh-huh and and I, it feels like I can almost speak no ill of this film, and I, I, I will at some point. <laughs> I will at some point during this, I, I swear. Um, but I feel like the the soundtrack done by Toto and Brian Eno was was very well done. It, you know, it's not distracting at all. It doesn't feel generic. It fits very well in every single scene. Subtle at some points and booming and powerful when it needs to be. Yeah, I mean, like I was saying earlier, this came just a few years after Queen did Flash Gordon. Mm-hmm. And so this could easily have gone in the same direction where you have this really distinct main theme song and you have this goofy 
sound effects based score and they really don't go that direction at all. I mean, if you had told me that the score was composed by a rock band and I didn't know, I, I never would have guessed because yeah. it, it does just like the film itself. It takes itself seriously, even in some of the silly, sillier aspects of the film itself. And so, um, like you said, I didn't really realize it or, or notice it too much until the end of the film. I got the prophecy theme at the very beginning and then I was paying attention to the story and the universe and the characters and then Towards the end of the film, I realized, oh, yeah, right. I'm supposed to be listening to the music. <laughs> yep, and music it, as well. <laughs> it, it really picks up towards the end, um, the, the long live the fighters quote. Yes. <laughs> and uh, there's this very cool mix of rock and like like a percussion and electric guitar. But there's also choral and the theme itself that plays at that moment. It feels very like a classic film score theme and very adventure film kind of theme. And mm -hmm. so I, I really like their approach there. And um as the worms are traveling before the, the giant climax of the film, he, he's bringing them in from all, all areas of the planet. And uh, I mean, one, that's a really cool shot seeing all the, the worms travel under the sand and you see them coming and um, you know that he's controlling them and then the music picks up. And so the, the, the way they approach the film as a serious film score, it, it warms my heart <laughs> because, mm -hmm. you know, Daft Punk ended up doing the same thing. Uh, more recently with Tron Legacy. I, I don't yeah. feel like that's a goofy score. They played no, to their strengths and it fits the tone of the film and it fits the universe of the film. And I think that's what a composer should always do, whether you compose for a rock band or whether you're a classically trained musician. Yeah, you would think Trent Reznor. It's like, oh, I mean that like industrial metal guy doing the social network? What? Right. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, like you said, it it's not noticeable a lot of the time. And I, I sort of wish there was a soundtrack release somewhere and I'm sure I could find it if I looked, but I'm sure there is somewhere, but yeah, I can't recall ever actually seeing it anywhere. It works in the film and that's a great thing to be said for it. I don't really have anything just aside from that to say <laughs> now the, the sort of meteor part of this discussion is the, the themes or the relevance. What, what do you take away from this film? <sighs> don't trust the flying fat man ever <laughs> if you ever happen to encounter a flying fat man i don't think we'll have i don't think we'll have to deal with that for another eight thousand years or so yeah, hopefully not <laughs> <laughs> at least not one as disgusting as this guy yeah yeah uh you know the, i feel like the it's almost this you know growing story like finding out who you are and then of course this one takes it to another level where if you find out what you eventually have to do will you be able to follow through with it right because paul it it isn't it, it like I said it was touched on he he does know that he will commit mass genocide he he does know but will he be able to go through with the current actions or with what he needs to do and still you know be able to accept the fact that he will become a villain he will become basically what he hated the most what he was trying to destroy right now Right. I wrote down something similar in my notes. I wrote down about the, the idea of prophecy or maybe even mm -hmm. just living up to expectations. Yeah. Everybody talks in this film about this, this godlike character, the savior. The Fremen see him as a savior. Others see him as a committer of mass genocide. And I mean, he's both at some point. So Paul even sees his future and he has these visions that reveal truth to him about the goings on in the universe, but also about himself. And he sort of uses it to realize his capabilities, right? Mm -hmm. He he knows what he's supposed to accomplish, and that helps him to do things that maybe he wouldn't otherwise have done had he not known the eventual outcome. Mm -hmm. Definitely, and he he the in the scene where he goes in and takes the water of life that that is uh, not as dramatic in the books actually 
he technically he dies. <laughs> like I guess that's pretty dramatic too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he he goes and only like he takes a single drop of the water of life and it basically puts him in a coma. And I believe his mother is the only one I was able to, to detect that he's still alive. They were getting ready to process him for his water at that point. Uh, and then he awoke from it and then drank the water of life again and then was able to start seeing uh, the future. His body had to learn how to process the water uh, using the weirding way. And in this one, you know, they they talked about that, how his character had to uh, there no man had ever tried this. They tried and failed. No, they tried and they died. So that that's why that scene was so impactful at that one uh, when it came up in the movie. Right, and that also sort of ties into the the, the sort of biblical connotations that are in this movie mm-hmm. as well. The idea of sacrifice and rebirth uh, that mm-hmm. obviously parallels Jesus, but also the idea of a character maybe with superhuman abilities having to um, basically he parallels the exodus of the Jews from Egypt. Uh, mm-hmm. he, he's both Jesus and Moses to these people. And uh, so that's a, a really interesting parallel watching how he gains the power. He he sacrifices himself in order to gain more power and re- is reborn, essentially. Mm-hmm. And then he saves these people from persecution, I guess. I, I don't know if the Fremen were necessarily being persecuted. They were definitely trapped on the planet. You, you got it right. They were being persecuted. They were um, trying to be exterminated. Okay. Uh, but it does. It, it wasn't correctly translated to the film very well. Okay. Um, well, one other thing that I had written down was the idea of fear being the mind killer. <laughs> and, you know, there's that scene that you mentioned earlier where he puts his hand in the box and you see this mind's eye picture of like his hand getting acid of some sort or a poison on it and it's melting away. His flesh is crawling and burning and he feels this and that's just what he sort of pictures is going on. But he withstands the pain and he leaves his hand in the box because he's told if he takes it out of the box, he'll die. Mm -hmm. And then when he takes it out, oh, look, my hand is completely unharmed. So it goes back to what Kennedy told us. The the only thing to fear is fear itself. The, The actual fear, what he feared was happening was worse than what was actually happening. He was just experiencing the pain. He wasn't actually having his hand destroyed. Yeah, the 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 litany against fear is what he recites. And, you know, it, it sounds cheesy, but it's something that I ended up taking away in life. If there was ever like a moment that, you know, when growing up, it's like, oh, I'm get, getting ready to go rock climbing or something. And I, I would, you know, fear is the mind killer. Fear is the little death that brings total obliteration. I will face my fear. I will allow it to pass over and through me. And when I have turned, I will see nothing, only fear's path. Say, saying that. It's it's stupid when you, when you think about it, but it's calming at the same time. I it's one of the more interesting things I took away from the movie when growing up. Yeah, I mean, I think it is one of the more powerful things because it's not. Isn't that quoted twice in the film? It towards, uh, once towards the beginning with the box, and then maybe mm-hmm. one other time towards the end of the film. I think I don't remember for sure. It, it's definitely quoted twice. I can't remember the exact moments and in different versions. It's quoted uh, in its full form and sometimes in, a, in an abridged form as well. Right. And so, I mean, I think that's a perfectly reasonable thing to walk away with primarily. It's just mm-hmm. this idea that fear is worse than anything else that might happen. You know, it, your, your fear of something is going to elevate it beyond what it actually is. Any other sort of takeaways from the film, Patrick? You know, as much as I seem to rave and praise this film, it's not really done particularly well in the chief thing that a film should do, and that is convey a story. Uh, you get you get the the good cliff notes. Paul 
is a you know kid in a royal family. Paul's family goes to take over the new planet as ordered by the emperor. Turns out it's a trap, and then Paul's family is killed, and he must fight for revenge. That is a horribly, horribly, horribly uh, pedestrian way to, to describe the story of Dune. It, def- <laughs> it, it definitely did not translate some of the things in the novel well, but I still believe that it is the most faithful adaptation of the of the book that we have uh, in turn, as I was saying, in terms of tone, um, you know, you, under, you, you, you may not understand why some of the stuff is happening, but you can feel for the characters. You can, you can understand the pain or sometimes their motivations as well going into it. And that's really what I walked away from the film with was, yes, I, I wouldn't say I was confused, but there, you're right. There wasn't a whole lot of story story going on Mm -hmm. it was the world that engrossed me i I just loved learning about the world and exploring the world and experiencing the world with the characters yeah the (laughs) this uh this movie when it originally ran in theaters actually had a fact sheet that was given out with your tickets (laughs) yeah so you know you go see pokemon movie you get pokemon cards you go see uh 3d movie you get 3d film you go see dune here is a two-page pamphlet uh, which was actually a condensed version of the index in the book. They took out everything that they didn't mention in in the movie, but they kept and explained everything else that was mentioned. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. And looking through the critical reception this film got, especially at release time, Roger Ebert gave it one out of four stars, and mm-hmm. uh, Siskel reviewed it, uh, started his review by saying it's physically ugly, contains at least a dozen gory, gross-ass scenes, I mean, et cetera. But again, what I took away from this film is this is a fascinating world and I want to read the book. And if a movie makes me want to walk away to explore more, then I'm perfectly okay with that film. Exactly. That, that, that's why whenever anyone says, Hey, I want to, I want to watch the movie. I'm like, have you ever read the book? No. Okay. Watch David Lynch version. You will, you will then want to read the book, which is, I don't know. I feel like that that kind of redeems it for me because <laughs> it it's it's allowed me to introduce friends and other people to the world of dune that i that i really really truly love and enjoy and you know the focus of the show is just talking about maybe movies that weren't the most well received but movies that we find joy in mm-hmm. and we take things away from and like i said i'm i'm just looking forward to going back and reading the book and then maybe going back and watching the film again and taking away more you should so <laughs> yeah uh, I think that, like I said, if a, if a film makes me do that, then there's nothing wrong with it in my eyes. When, when you end up doing that, uh, talk to me again, because I'm interested to see uh, what you think of it after you've read the book and understand some more of the character's motivations. I definitely will. <laughs> <laughs> my, my sort of final thoughts. It's a type of film, yes, maybe there's not a lot of story, but I do think there is some depth here. It's an easy f- film to underappreciate for that reason. If you you look at its flaws, then you're not going to get to the sort of underbelly of it where dissecting it is going to enrich you. You're going to find more and you're going to want to explore more. And so I'm looking forward to diving in more of Dune. Awesome. Do you have any sort of final thoughts? You know, it, it may be dated in terms of some of the visuals. Uh, you know, I think this is a film that uses matte paintings for some of the backgrounds. And some of the special effects, uh, the the blue eyes of all the Fremen are are rotoscoped in. And, you know, you can kind of see them 
moving around just a little bit <laughs> if you if you if you get a really high quality version of sort of the like movie. the original lightsabers mm-hmm. exactly exactly and you know this i guess the original uh critique of this movie when they you know when it first came out in, in its theatrical run it was mostly comparing it to star wars because you know the the special effects of sci-fi that those go hand in hand and this one you know, it's got it's got still pictures moving over a over a background sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, so initial uh, initial uh, viewings of the movie uh, were, you know, I understand I understand why this one wasn't really well thought of at the time. But then again, it perfectly opens up the world, which is all that I can really ask for. Definitely, and so. With that, I think we wrap up our discussion on the official 19th episode of Cinescope. Thank you so much for being here again, Patrick. Hey, no problem. Thanks for inviting me. Contact for the show. Remember, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Podcast and at Pod on Twitter. Again, rate, review, subscribe on iTunes. It helps us a lot. And you can also email feedback and ideas to Podcast at gmail.com. And if you're interested in co-hosting like Patrick just did, if you have a film that maybe isn't all that popular to everybody else, but you find something in it you enjoy, definitely let me know and we'll talk about it on the show. Um, where can people find you online, Patrick? Oh, if you want to talk to me uh, on Twitter, at Holtzman, H-O-L-T-Z-M-A-N-N underscore Y-T. I know my branding is absolutely horrible. If you are interested <laughs> in, if you're interested in destiny at all, I have a YouTube channel, uh, youtube.com slash PKC Forte uh, branding. I need to work on it. <laughs> <laughs> all that contact information is going to be in the show notes for all the people. Oh, out there. thank God. Oh, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> the best place to find me is on Twitter at Chadadada. That is C H A D A D A D A. And on Facebook at facebook.com slash chad.hopkins. And like I just said, all the show notes, all the contact information can be found at our website, thecinescopepodcast.com. And that is all for this week. Thank you once again, Patrick, for being on the show. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed it. Me too. And thank you everyone out there for listening to episode 19. I'm Chad Hopkins. This was Cinescope. And we'll be back next week with episode 20. Have fun and celebrate movies. (laughs) 